visionary CEO rides off into the sunset and a real estate trend moves to the foreground. Details next. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, joined by Motley Fool senior analyst Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Last Friday on the show, we did Stocks on Our Radar with Steve Broido, and uh, the stock on your radar was McCormick. Shocker. And the, <laughs> this morning, the spice maker came out with first quarter profits and revenue that were higher than expected, but the stock is down a little bit because of supply chain issues, inflation. Before we get into the nitty gritty, what did you think of the quarter? Yeah, I mean, you, your points are are spot on there in regard to supply chain uh, constraints and inflation. But all things considered, I thought this was a really good quarter. It was right in line with with the guidance that management has set. Uh, last quarter, they they sort of set the table, no pun intended, for the year, um, gearing for revenue growth of five percent at the midpoint, um, calling for earnings per share of three dollars and twenty cents uh, for the year, and they're maintaining that. And for the quarter. They grew sales four percent in constant currency. So, uh, for me, you know, I, I prioritize first and foremost when you know I'm looking for a company to meet the goals that they set. Right? I'm I'm more focused on them meeting the guidance and expectations that they set versus what you know, arbitrary goals perhaps analysts might set. And so, from that perspective, you know, I look at a quarter like this and I think this is right in line with what they were telling us they were going to do. And and as a shareholder, as someone who's recommended the stock before. Uh, that that gives me comfort. I mean, management knows this business very well. Um, it, it does bear noting. I mean, as you said, there's supply chain constraints and inflation are coming into play here, and that played out on operating income. Uh, it wasn't terribly surprising, um, and, and so management is is really focusing on. They they see a stronger second half of the year, and a lot of that is due to price increases that are going to be phasing in here during the second quarter. Uh, the nice thing is that McCormick has demonstrated over time the ability to raise those prices just incrementally uh, here and there w without really seeing too much of an impact of the business. So all things considered, the, the consumer side of the business, the flavor solution side of the business, uh, all of it put together, it, it it seems like this is a business that's it's managing the current environment very well. Can you remind me of um, the percentage between those two parts of the business? Because I think anyone who's been into a grocery store, you walk around, you're going to run into McCormick. It's easy to get a handle on what the consumer side of their business looks like. But you mentioned the part, which is essentially the business side, the, you know, McCormick selling directly to restaurants and companies that make packaged foods. And by the way, revenue was up 12% in the quarter in that division. Um, but when you sort of put those side by side, is one obviously they want both to be growing, but is one more important than the other? I don't know that really. I would say one is more important than the other. I mean, what we're seeing certainly is um, the business. They're witnessing some more strength in flavor solutions, which is the side of the business that, that you know they service the the packaged goods and uh, restaurants and, and and things like that. Um, it, it sort of it used to. I think it used to be called actually the industrial side. But ultimately, what you get with that is is a little bit of a lower margin business because it's such higher volume. So they don't necessarily witness the same. Kind of pricing power necessarily on that side that they do on the consumer side, but you're right. I mean, they definitely like to see both parts of the business uh, contributing equally, more or less, and and that's what they're doing. Uh, but but it did seem like for the quarter they saw more strength in flavor solutions as continued demand recovery of away from home products uh, continued uh, to, to grow for the quarter. That's interesting to me that 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 is the side of the business that has lower margins. Is it is it because Competition is a little tougher 
in that regard? Well, I don't think it's that as much as maybe they're just dealing with bigger scale customers. And so typically when you're dealing with bigger scale customers like that, you're going to be conceding a little bit more on the pricing. You're going to be offering a little bit more on the value side, whereas on the consumer side, uh, you're able to pass along a little pricing here and there. So I think generally speaking, that that's kind of the way you have to look at this business. And that's why it's so valuable to have both sides, because if one is witnessing some headwinds, the other one is typically there to pick up the slack. And if you remember just a couple of years ago, we were really talking about how the consumer side of the business was performing so well because so many people uh, sort of started cooking at home again or realized the merits of cooking at home or, or just even, even took it on to learn how to cook at home, right? And I think that what they've seen and what they're talking about in these calls is they're seeing that stick. They're seeing a lot of a lot of these folks that you know took took it on themselves to start trying to cook at home a little bit more over the last couple of years. Maybe they're realizing the value in that. Maybe they're realizing that you can you can make good food at home. You can do it for cheaper. Uh, you can do it on your own terms, and you can have what you want. And and I mean, let's face it. I mean, I, I I've been cooking all my life. I mean, cooking is fun if you know how to do it. <laughs> so I mean, it, it's 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 a nice skill to have. And so it is nice to see that. You know, over the last couple of years, they benefited from that consumer side as more and more people were eating at home. And now that we see the economy uh, back and running, and people are back out and doing things, they're still seeing stickiness there of people cooking at home. But now they're seeing a resurgence, a recovery in that flavor solution side of the business as well as more and more people continue to go out. It is interesting to think about their optimism for the rest of the year because part of what we're seeing, and I agree with you. I would, I would rather see. It's more important to me to see a business meeting their own expectations versus Wall Street's expectations. However, Wall Street's expectations are a fact of life when it comes to <laughs> investing, and I think that's why we're seeing the stock down a little bit because, you know, overall revenue while it grew, um, the year-over-year growth I think was like four percent um, a year ago. That growth was twenty percent because you know it's coming off of the pandemic. Um, so, do you get a sense that they expect that number to tick up higher into sort of the higher single digits, um, or are they coming up against slightly lower year-over-year -year comps? I, I think they're they're coming up on a very difficult hurdle last year. So you're right, the, the 20% growth. Now, I will say, if you if you look at the organic growth, that actually was 16%. So the 20% reflected. Um, some of the incremental sales they've gained from the the acquisitions of Cholula and Fona, and and so, but but any which way you cut it, I mean, for a business like McCormick to grow sixteen percent is somewhat abnormal. That's a little bit of an outlier. Um, it's not it's not something investors should expect. And, and management has done a very good job through the years of really giving, I think, not not just conservative but just reasonable guidance and, and usually pretty accurate guidance. So this is you know this isn't a business where I think investors should be looking for double-digit revenue growth year over year on a consistent basis. It's not really why you would own this stock. It's a bit more of one of those sort of stable ideas that um, it, it's kind of it's kind of a marathon, not a sprint, right? I mean, it's a dividend aristocrat. You know that they care about returning value to shareholders. They care about that that status as a dividend aristocrat. So we'll continue to raise that dividend every year, I would imagine. Uh, for for the foreseeable future, uh, they they put themselves in the financial position to be able to do that, and I think the nature of the business allows them to do that as well because it's such a strong recurring sales uh, business. Um, so I I, you know, I don't know that they necessarily are aiming for something greater than six percent. I mean, it was, it was 
a range of four to six percent for the year. Um, they they did note. I mean, they will be putting through some price increases this year. So it remains to be seen exactly how that impacts the financials. That could, in theory. Um, be a drag on the top line if consumers really do continue continue to sort of pinch the purse string, so to speak. Uh, but generally speaking, they do a very good job of, of of nailing that guidance and giving us sort of reasonable expectations. Um, and so I think that you look for a business like this to return three, four, five percent uh, annualized revenue growth for the foreseeable future. And and as they continue to grow, I think I think the wild card there they'll continue to examine the acquisition landscape because we've seen them make a number of acquisitions. Through the years that have really added to the strength of their overall portfolio, right? The French's acquisition was it the, the RB Foods. Uh, I mean, we had Cholula, Frank's Red Hot. You got in that that uh, portfolio now. You get the Fona acquisition, and and they are absolutely going to continue looking at the at the acquisition landscape uh, because they they've proven that they are very good at doing it. And I think the scale gives them the opportunity to really plug any brand or family of brands in there and immediately distribute it globally. Uh, which is a very attractive prospect for a business like this. Last thing before we move on. Uh, on the show last Friday, Steve Broido floated the idea of a marketing campaign for McCormick, which encouraged people to check the ex <laughs> expiration date. And we laughed. Yeah. You know, we thought, well, that's that's kind of funny. And uh, something happened to me over the weekend that made me think, no, they should actually do this. Because uh, over the weekend, I walked into the kitchen, and the person to whom I'm related by marriage was going through the, the, the spice uh, cabinet, and throwing things out. And I, I said, oh, what's what's going on? And she said, take a guess. What do you think is the expiration date for the year of this nutmeg that she was holding <laughs> in her hand? And I said, I, I don't, like 2020, 2070, 2011. Yeah. It expired yeah. in 2011. So, um, I'm in the market now for a whole bunch of spices. <laughs> and uh, the folks at McCormick should really consider this. I, I'm, I'm going to tell you what, I mean, that's, we, 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 we joke about that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I I feel like they, I feel like those expiration dates when it comes to herbs and spices are a little bit more from a liability standpoint than anything else. I mean, they do seem to outlast those expiration dates. Um, but I mean, there is something to be said for fresh herbs and spices, right? I mean, they do lose their quality over time. And if you're talking like oregano or red pepper flakes, I mean, I go through bottles upon bottles of that stuff every year, so I don't run into that problem. But but all of a sudden, you know, you look at my turmeric, and I'm like, well, I might use that a couple of times a year over the course. Of of a, of a decade, <laughs> so so yeah, I think that's a great idea, and I think on the show I likened it to basically the the streaming, the streaming businesses saying, hey, we're going to cut down on people password sharing to to try to uh, you know make make this a little bit more fair for everyone. And there's no question, I think, if everybody collectively here domestically just went through their spice cabinet to check the expiration dates, there would be a run on McCormick spices <laughs> over the coming quarter, I would suspect. More than 50 years ago, Fred Smith started a business that we now call FedEx. Late Monday, the company announced Smith will be stepping down as CEO. President and Chief Operating Officer Raj Subramaniam will become the CEO on June 1st. Fred Smith is 77 years old. And first and foremost, you just got to tip your cap to someone Absolutely. who created a business where none really existed previously. And I think the fact that shares of FedEx are up 4% uh, when I checked about 20 minutes ago is a testament to uh, confidence that uh, he's got the right successor. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, congratulations to Mr. Smith. I mean, that's that's a just a heck of a job. Really, really, really well done. And just uh, you know, building this business from the ground. I mean, he's been a CEO since 1998, retiring at 77. Hopefully, he enjoys uh, his golden years. Go play a lot of golf, Fred. If you if you play golf, um, I, I do think you're right. I think the market is probably looking at Raj today and thinking that they got the right person for the job. He's 55 years old. He's been the COO of the business since 2019. But I think more importantly, worth noting, he's been with the company since 1991. And so we always love to see COOs being considered for that CEO role because they're so intimately familiar with the business. And given Raj's history with the business, I mean, he's held a number of different positions in a number of different geographic locations, I might add. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine there is someone more intimately familiar with this business than him. Uh, so given his age, given his experience with the business, and given sort of the, the 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 shifting nature of this landscape, right? I mean, when when Fred Smith was was in his prime here, I mean, you, you didn't have e-commerce the way we have it now, right? You didn't have everybody getting everything shipped to their houses same day or next day. Uh, so it, it's 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 worth noting. I mean, the demand for services that companies like FedEx provide. Uh, has 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 grown immensely uh, over the last several years, and and it it I think leads to a bit of a shifting landscape. It's a more competitive landscape. You see businesses like Amazon getting in there, wanting to to capture some of that uh, logistics and fulfillment uh, market opportunity there. And and so for me, I, I mean I think this is as good a shot as any for FedEx to continue maintaining their relevance and and to be able to change with that changing landscape. It's it's not been the Best investment, I think, over the last several years. I mean, if you look at the ten-year chart, the total price return there, it's trailing the market. It's not been a bad investment. Investors made, you know, just just under it's, it stocks up just under two hundred percent over that ten years. Um, five years, a little bit of a different picture there. It's it's up around thirty-five percent, trailing the market as well. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, it, it it it's not to say that. This is a shoe in, and he'll do well. We've seen plenty of examples where COOs step into that CEO role and don't pull it off. I mean, the one that comes to mind is Don Thompson, I think, with McDonald's. Um, that was a very short tenure he had there in the CEO role. Uh, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say this is an automatic, but I would absolutely say this seems like the most reasonable and logical choice for the job. So I read this this morning. Um, I had heard a reference to this, and I went and looked it up, and I'll just read uh, what I found online about sort of Fred Smith. Because the origin for this business it goes back to his college days. We, you know, we've talked before about John Bogle um, writing a, a college paper about the idea for the index fund, and he goes off and starts Vanguard and revolutionizes the investing world. Um, in 1965, while attending Yale University, Fred Smith wrote an economics paper exploring how goods were transported in the United States. At the time, shippers focused on transporting large packages across the United States by truck or inside passenger airplanes. Smith thought that a company carrying small essential items by plane could be a more efficient transporter than existing companies. Smith wrote the paper at the last minute, and he did not go into details of how to actually run such a company. His professor gave him a C. <laughs> but then six years later, he this idea becomes reality. He starts this company. Um, I, I, I want to go back to something that you sort of touched on, which is when you are an investor, um, investing in companies is, among other things, uh, 
an act of optimism. Um, there is an element, particularly when it comes to CEO succession, that is a leap of faith. That you that you uh, you just have to trust that the CEO and board of directors have done the the legwork, and you have to trust their judgment that this is the person who we have chosen to lead the company next. Um, and you just have to take the leap of faith with them. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, I mean, I've said it for a while that investing just in its own and investing every investment we make, I mean, there is, it, it involves a leap of faith. And it's just a matter of how great of a leap of faith um, you're willing to make. I mean, that some, some companies, it's a very easy leap to make. Some companies, you realize it's a bigger leap. And so you position size accordingly. Um, but, but there's no question about it. I mean, it, everything can look good on paper. Uh, or in this case, in regard to Mr. Smith's uh, paper, maybe it didn't look all that good. I mean, I can't say why he got a C, but it turned out to be a banging idea, right? He's got a, a $60 billion company he's leaving behind. He was, uh, so, he was light on details. That's why <laughs> yeah, he got a C. Take that, professor. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do agree. I mean, anytime, anytime you run into situations like this, I mean, you can look at the pedigree and you can see everything on the resume and you can say, this is absolutely the right call. Regardless, there is always a leap of faith there, and you have to keep that in mind. There is nothing. Uh, there, there are no givens in, in this uh, in this line of work. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. What should investors be watching these days in the real estate market? For the answer to that and other questions about real estate investing, here's Robert Brokamp. Some of the oldest asset allocation advice comes from the Talmud, that ancient text of Jewish law. And the advice can be translated as, let every man divide his money into three parts and invest a third in land, a third in business, and a third let him keep by him in reserve. It's actually not bad advice, really, that puts a good amount of money in safe assets, a good bit in what today we would consider stocks, but also a sizable allocation to real estate. In our March 1st episode, we spoke with Motley Fool Senior Advisor Matt Argersinger about the benefits of buying and renting out real estate. He's the lead investor for the Fool's Mogul and Real Estate Winner Services, and also owns some properties himself. But as we pointed out in that episode, being a landlord could be a hassle. So you may wonder, are there ways to invest in real estate without having to take 3 a.m. calls about plumbing or evicting deadbeat renters? Well, yes, there is. And Matt is back to tell us all about him. Welcome back, Matt. Hey, thanks, bro, and thanks for having me back. So let's start with the easiest way to invest in commercial real estate, and that is buying a real estate investment trust, also called a REIT. So tell us about REITs, Matt. That's right. Uh, REITs have been around for a long time, actually. They were established in the 60s, believe it or not. Uh, and at the time, there were very few REITs, uh, but nowadays, there are hundreds of REITs. And the reason REITs came about is because they wanted to like mutual funds and for stocks, uh, REITs came about to enable the individual investor to buy into a basket of commercial real estate assets, which was hard to do. It's still hard to do, but it's, it was really hard to do 50 years ago. And so REITs came about, and there are, like I said, hundreds of REITs. And a single REIT usually uh, gives you access to dozens of properties. It can, you know, it can give you access to real estate across the country. Or you can have REITs that specialize in certain asset classes like self-storage or uh, hotels or office uh, or retail. And so it's really just as a, as a public markets investor, they're really accessible ways to invest in real estate. REITs are the, are the best way to do it. Um, most pay, um, you know, pay pretty good dividends because they're required by law 
to pay out 90% of their income uh, in dividends. Uh, that also prevents them from being double taxed. As you know, with most dividends that you get from companies, those companies are paying you after-tax uh, cash flow to pay those dividends. So dividends are essentially taxed twice at the corporate level and at the individual level. Well, that doesn't happen with REITs because they're pass-through entities. And really, there are some other requirements with REITs, but generally, they have to have 75% of their assets invested in real estate or real estate-related activities. Um, so, a great way for the average investor to get uh, invested in real estate. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the historical performance. So, as you point out, they're higher-yielding investments these days. The, the overall REIT universe yields about twice that of the S&P 500. And since 1972, actually, REITs have outperformed the S&P 500, about a half a percentage point or so. And then... In about 56% of the individual years, they've beaten the S&P 500. And the other benefit you'll often hear about REITs is they're not always highly correlated to the stock market. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. So an example of when they weren't was the dot-com crash, where the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ lost money in 2000, 2001, 2002, three years in a row. But REITs actually made money over those three years. But then we had the Great Recession, where stocks of every type fell, and REITs really fell. So diversification is often a double-edged sword, but that is one of the benefits of REITs, where you get something that'll act a little differently than the overall stock market sometimes, um, and actually has a better performance than the stock market. Not only have REITs, you know, as you pointed out, outperformed the S&P 500 in their history, they've also done so with a lot less volatility, about half the volatility of the average stock in the stock market. And so, over time, you know, if you're if you're kind of a, a risk averse or you know a volatility scared investor, they're a great asset to kind of give you let you sleep a little better at night, knowing that you have some amount of your portfolio in state more stable assets that are paying out dividends and that aren't going to jump around as much like today's you know tech companies, for example. Yeah, and I think these days also people are worried about inflation. So when you look at the worst period of inflation for the U.S., which was 1973 to 1981, inflation averaged over 9% a year. S&P 500 only made 5% a year, so it actually lost ground on an inflation perspective, but REITs actually earned 12% a year. So these days, people are looking for inflation hedges. They look to REITs. Um, I think it's interesting that actually that REITs have done well during inflationary times because during inflationary times, interest rates often go up, and REITs do rely on leverage, but somehow they still manage to overcome that, historically at least, and outpace inflation. That's right. They've been an incredible inflation hedge. And so, uh, you mentioned higher interest rates. That does usually happen with higher inflation. But REITs are kind of able to, to get around that because oftentimes they're building in price escalators in their rents. So, you know, most, most rental, uh, most REITs get most of their revenue from rental income. And those are over in the commercial world over long term leases, five, 10 year leases that they sign with their tenants. And they often build in inflation protection or rent escalators into those uh, leases that add to the rent every year a certain percentage. Uh, but also, I think it's because when you're talking REITs, you're talking about assets, hard assets. And like residential, like the residential market, like houses, uh, the replacement costs for those assets tend to rise with inflation. And so, the asset value of a REIT also tends to rise in, in during inflationary times. And so, They've they've been a great inflation hedge throughout their history of the last fifty years, and I expect they'll do well. If you look at many studies that the National Association of REITs have done or the CBRE has done, um, when interest rates rise, when there is higher inflation, uh, REITs, den, REITs do tend to outperform, and I expect that'll be the case going forward as well. 
Now, one easy way to get exposure to REITs is just to buy like a REIT index fund. And one of the biggest is from Vanguard. The ticker is VNQ. I own it myself. Um, but the problem is then you own all types of REITs. And there are 13 different types. You named a few of them. Um, tell us if you think these days some types of REITs and maybe even some individual companies are more attractive than others. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the, the, and again, the beauty of REITs, like you said, you can just you could really choose exactly where what parts of the real estate market you want you want to invest in. I'll start with ones I'd probably be a little leery of right now. I, I would probably stay away from your traditional office REIT uh, only because I think there are some good values in that space, and and I I, I kind of am a long term believer in office. I just think there's so much uncertainty hanging over that asset class right now that you're probably just better to avoid it altogether. I think retail is challenging. Retail REITs tend to be challenging, um, even though I think, again, there's some pretty good values in that space as well. On the positive side, I would take a really good look at hospitality. I think we know what happened to hospitality REITs, hotels, and resorts during COVID. Terrible place to be. A lot of those uh, REITs were really beaten down. But today, I think with the pandemic hopefully on the wane and, and with things getting back to normal, people traveling again, um, I think hospitality is set up to do pretty well, and the valuations are still really decent. So when I look at a company like Ryman Hospitality Properties, the ticker is RHP, or a Pebblebrook Hotel Trust, uh, PEB, these are REITs that specialize mainly in resorts, resort-style um, properties, um, unique assets within cities and destinations where people are traveling to. I think those are pretty, pretty compelling to me. I would also look at um, self-storage uh, or industrial REITs as well. There's a bunch of those. Those asset classes are so resilient, and in a way, a lot of ways, recession resistant. Um, and we've talked about industrial real estate, I know, in the past, and how there's just such a need for more warehouse and fulfillment space as we, as Americans, you know, do more of their shopping online. We just don't have enough of it, and I think that's got a huge long runway to go. Yeah, with the with the office real estate, it's interesting. The Wall Street Journal had an article earlier this month that looked at. Um, the uh, the data from Castle Security, you know that company where you people swipe in and out of their office, and in, right. in ten big cities, offices are only like thirty six percent full, so um, they're mostly still empty. Yet, according to an Atlantic article, um, corporate demand for office space is down only one percent. So, what's going on there? Are, are are companies just waiting for everyone to return? It's a it's a weird dichotomy. No, I th what I think is you have a lot of big institutional. Uh, big institutions and corporations. I'm thinking the big financials, the banks, but also looking at companies like Google or Facebook or, or Amazon, who are looking to occupy more space. They're growing. They're at, you know they're adding a lot of new workers, and they really believe in sort of a collaborative work environment. And so there is demand on that side. But I would say on the flip side of that, you pointed out the the actual physical occupancy of office is so low, and I do think in most cities, even though the demand is still pretty high uh, at the corporate level, we're going to see less office use um, in the future. I, I'm hesitant to say that we've reached peak office, but I think we might have hit peak office before COVID. And I, I don't know if we'll actually ever go back to the same amount of square footage utilization that we had before the pandemic. And so I expect a lot of office space that we have today is going to go away. It's going to be probably transformed into something else. But there is that strange dichotomy of you do have a lot of big corporations who are still leasing office at a pretty, pretty big rate. 
they talk about turning it into something else. And, you know, we live here in Northern Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C., and I know of big office buildings that are just sitting there empty, as well as some malls that are sitting around being empty, even though this is a big metropolitan area. So are, are real estate companies trying to come up with creative ways to, to use that space? Yes, they are in a lot of ways. And we talked about office. So you see what's happening in a lot of cities. Office buildings are being turned into um, apartment buildings. It's, it's not easy to do, but that's that's something that's happening. Uh, or they're, maybe they're being turned into more co-working spaces uh, or even hospitality in, in certain instances. I think with suburban office, and you mentioned malls and, and kind of retail that's out there, uh, you know, we talked about the need for more industrial space like warehousing. You're seeing that happen. Um, you're seeing even you're even seeing some malls being turned into data centers, <laughs> for example, which is something hmm. we we probably need a lot more of as as our networking needs just keep expanding. And so, a lot of that space, the beauty the beauty of real estate, even and if you're a REIT investor and maybe you're a REIT investor who's worried that your your office portfolio is too big, there's always a use case for that for that for those assets, especially if they're in a good location, high traffic area. Uh, there's always a use case. It just depends on how how it can be transformed to get there. Um, but that that is one of the beauties of real estate. There's multiple ways to use it, and I think these days a lot of the older traditional ways, retail office, is being transformed into other more higher use uh, activities today. So we talked about REITs, and as you mentioned, REITs have been around for a long time. Something that is um, feels to me at least uh, a little newer is crowdfunding. So tell us a little bit about what that is and whether that is uh, why that might be more attractive than just buying a publicly traded REIT. Well, so we talked about some of the advantages of REITs. They're, you know, they're, they're in the public markets. They're, they're, you can buy and sell them like stocks. So there's high liquidity and you can get really big diversification. What that doesn't give you, though, is access to maybe a single asset. Let, let's say there's a office building in Chicago or a, um, a hotel in Los Angeles that you really want to invest in. That, that, accessing that has been still been pretty difficult for the average retail investor. That is until crowdfunding has come along. And really over the last 10 years, since the Jobs Act was passed, uh, you've had this explosion really in the private equity side of real estate, but the private equity side that's now accessible to a retail investor, uh, on the, and usually most, in most cases, an accredited investor. And so that's out there. Um, I would say there's many advantages to that. Usually there's, like I said, you get access to a single asset. The rewards can be greater because oftentimes you're investing in maybe a development that's going up or uh, maybe like I talked about office being transferred into our apartments, you're investing in a deal that's taking a single office building and converting it to apartments. That can be pretty exciting to invest in. The rewards can be great. The risks are certainly greater and you're also you're not getting the same diversification that you get with REITs. You're also not getting the liquidity you get with REITs. Uh, oftentimes with these crowdfunding deals, you're investing for three, five, sometimes 10 years before you even get any profits out of them. So that's something you really got to take into account. And the minimum investments can be pretty high, anywhere from twenty-five to 50000 even $100,000 per investment. Whereas, you know, of course, with REITs, you can invest $100 in your brokerage account today if you wanted to and buy and sell it tomorrow. You know, so... Uh, lots of advantages and disadvantages on both sides. Um, I think if you're a real estate investor who's looking to maybe take your games to the next level and you happen to be accredited, I think crowdfunding can be an option to look at. You just need to be um, you know, aware of the risks that are out there. Let's get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts. When you were on, we were talking about you know, if you want to go buy a house and rent it out or something like that. There are actually some tax benefits. There's a lot of things you can write off as a uh, if you own your own properties. There's depreciation. There are things like 1031 exchange where you can basically roll the gain into a new property in a certain amount of time. 
Does all that apply to these types of investments, or is that pretty much exclusive to you, being like going out there and owning your own property? Not, not necessarily. The the same benefits don't really apply to you because with the, when a crowd with a the average crowdfund investment, you're only investing in the equity part of the deal. Uh, it's very much like you're investing in the stock market. It just happens to be in the in the private space, and so you're only going to get the pass through benefits of that entity you're investing in. It's all kind of rolled into the return you get, but you don't get to sort of take advantage of that at, a, at an individual level with your taxes that you might if you owned your own rental property and you know could work through all that on your own. Uh, but you know, at the same time, because you're only on the equity side, you don't have a massive mortgage to deal with. You know, you're not. We talked about earlier, you're not dealing with tenants. I mean, that's all being handled sort of at the entity level. You're just an equity investor in the in the deal, and so you get the profits, you get the upside, you get cash flow and distributions, uh, and you don't have to deal with the headaches. But you also don't get some of the other uh, added benefits that you would get by being your own landlord. Well, Matt, this has been great. Thanks for joining us again. Where should people go to learn more about real estate investing? Well, they can go to realestateinvesting.fool.com. Again, that's where a lot of our free real estate content goes. Go check that out. I would also say, if you're really interested in learning more about REITs specifically, there's a great book by Ralph Block, a former fool, by the way. I think, bro, you used to know him. Yes, uh, great guy. Ralph Block, and his, his book is called Investing in REITs. There's, it's, been, it's gone through several editions now, but if you get the latest edition of that book, I've read it twice, actually, and it's a book I rely on a lot with, uh, within my premium services that I work on. Uh, fantastic book, just really dives into all the, all the aspects of REITs, from basics to advanced uh, topics. It's, uh, it's really a great book. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.